We will see how long my voice holds out. I encourage you to pray for me. I've been on the edge of something all week, and just when I think I've got it, I think I've got it mastered, it kind of creeps back in to my voice, so you'll probably hear a little bit of that today. Do you all enjoy a good break week? Those of you that had a break week? Any, well, who had a break week? Let's see your hands. Did you enjoy it? Wow, not very many of you. You had break work. Yeah, that's good. How many had break work this week, yeah? So, it's been a good week, I think, for some, for some of the kids, but uh, not all of us enjoyed the, the same rest, and... Uh, it's always hard when you're coming out of a break week when you're more tired at the end of it than you are at the beginning, right? Anybody experience that? Are you all here today? That's good. Oh, good. All right. There are some interaction. That's, that's good to hear. Um, it's, it's easier to know that you're a live group. Because sometimes I do come in and I practice during the week, just so you know. Sometimes I practice and there is nobody there and I, I have to envision people in the seats, and if it feels like that on Sunday, I'm really nervous, so, all right, so good morning, it is good to have you here today. We are going to be um, kicking off a new sermon series today, so welcome to uh, a series I am calling Defining Moments, and that series is um, going to take us all the way through Easter, uh, so we're going to be talking through the second part of the book of Matthew, from Matthew 16 on. So today, if you want to follow along, eventually I'll get to Matthew chapter 16, and uh, I'm going to be reading from verses 13 through 20. So they'll also be up here on the screen in just a few minutes. But all of us, all of us have some defining moments in our lives, don't we? Anybody have, anybody know or think? I want you to reflect for a a minute on some of your defining moments. They can be life-transforming, They can be powerful. Oftentimes they're quite memorable. They probably stick with you for many years to come. I was reflecting on a few in my own life and certainly could point back to my wedding day. I can't honestly recount all the details of my wedding day, but I could remember a few of them, right? My wedding day was a defining moment in my life. And and as I started to reflect even further, I think probably even... As defining as that day was, and I often tell couples who are in the marriage process, uh, the day that you actually ask someone to marry you is probably the almost more defining because it sets the course for everything that follows, right? The, The wedding day is special in and of itself. It's a ceremonial day, and but there's a lot that goes into that wedding day. And then after the day, You actually have to figure out what it's like to live together, right? So the defining moments happen all throughout the process and the journey, but that's one for me. I don't know what it is for you. I mean, it could be um, marriage. It could have been baptism. It could have been having kids, you know? You think about all the different seasons of life. Uh, Maybe it was... Entering or or exiting an important relationship that you had. Maybe it was voting. Some of you care about voting or the results of the elections at least, right? Some of those have been defining moments for us, haven't they? Maybe you've been working hard to achieve a goal or a dream. I think you get the idea, right? There's, 
There's different moments in our lives that define pretty much everything that follows. And those defining moments have a strong influence on both us, those around us, the choices that we make, even the things that happen in that moment will define the rest of our lives. That's really no more true than in our spiritual lives. You can look at, of course, the rest of our lives, but if you look in your life, spiritually speaking, there are also very significant moments that happen in our spiritual lives. And this new series is going to take a look at some of those moments for the life of Jesus and his disciples as he was journeying with them all the way up to the cross and then eventually uh, through the resurrection. As I said, we're going to be using the second half of the Apostle Matthew's first century account of this. And so if you want to do some reading on your own, I would encourage you to spend some time reading in Apostle Matthew's account. It's the first book uh, in what we call the New Testament of the Bible. As we work through each Sunday, you're going to have some opportunities, I think, to reflect on your own journey, on your own relationship with this person that we call Jesus Christ. And I pray that along the way, by God's grace, you're going to have some moments or encounter some moments That could very well define your future. It might be that there's a decision that needs to be made. Maybe you've never really made that important decision to know to follow Jesus Christ. It might just be a habit that has to change. Life has gotten in the way of your devotion. Life has gotten in the way of your pursuit of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're going to encounter an opportunity to reignite or refocus your journey. Could be that it becomes a public declaration. I'm hoping if there are a few of you that might be interested in and have maybe never been baptized that we would have a baptismal service at Easter, which is a historic tradition of the Christian church. But I would love to do that. So if you've never been baptized and you are interested in pursuing that and making a public declaration of your faith. Easter would be the time, a great time to do that, and I would love to know that. But I want you to be attentive as we go through this series, attentive to the stories that we're going to talk about, attentive to the ideas. And I want you to be asking God, what is my response? What do I need to be doing in response to what I'm hearing Before I go too much further, I want to talk about what kind of defining moments we're going to be looking at. And I think, just to kind of narrow it down and clarify it for you, we're going to be looking a lot at the defining moments of who Jesus was. So these might be called defining moments of his identity. Alright, so we're going to be looking at trying to understand through his words and through the way it was reflected back to us by Matthew, who was Jesus? Not just who he was, but then also how we respond to that. Because here's something that I believe. I believe that what you believe about the identity of Jesus will define your investment in relationship with him and with the world. 
So we have to really, really get this. We have to really understand who Jesus is in order to really understand how to relate to him and also how he is asking us to relate to the rest of the world. We're actually going to start this series in a two-part way. Today's title of the sermon is What's in a Name? And I'm titling it Part One. Because we're looking today at just one piece of an interaction Jesus had with his disciples. Next week, we're going to pick it up. Uh, and we'll look at verses 21 through 28 of Matthew 16. So today, it's what's in a name, part one. What's in a name? We're talking about Jesus' identity. Here's a fact for you, just to kind of back out for a minute. we kind of back out, take a big picture here for a second. According to the um, United States Bureau of Justice Statistics, um, they have some great, great data on there. 17.6 million people ages 16 and up were the victims of identity theft in the year 2014. That's just in the year 2014 alone. That included 8.6 million people victimized due to fraudulent use of a credit card. And two-thirds of all victims faced a direct financial loss. It's pretty significant. And that was in 2014. The numbers have been going up. It's pretty crazy. I got an email over the last couple of weeks from something called LifeLock. Anybody ever heard of them? And I keep, I got to do that. I keep thinking I got to do that. But it costs $100 a year. I don't know. I just, but it might be better than the identity theft that goes along with it, right? We've got to take this stuff seriously in our day and age. It's an increasing threat because somebody can simply pretend to be you, get a couple of appropriate numbers, a few pieces of information, and if they claim that they are you, and they have those numbers, they can do a lot of damage. Now think about that with Jesus kind of give you the context for where we're coming today. Jesus seems very interested to know. He's kind of gathered his disciples together, and they've walked up to a town known as Caesarea Philippi. We'll read that in just a minute. And he's asking for a report from them. He kind of wants to know how the word's getting out. And I think contextually we can understand that his questions are related to the fact that he doesn't want some false identities floating around about who he is. He wants to know what people are saying about him. Jesus needed to clarify his identity. It was a critical and it was a defining moment in his life and in his ministry and in Matthew's account of his journey it really represents a significant hinge moment in the account of Matthew. So let's read it together. If you have it in your Bible, you can follow along up here. It says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, 
the Son of the living God. Let's stop right there before we go on too far. Let me just give you a little bit of a picture of what this looks like. This is the Sea of Galilee down here. This is the Jordan River that leads down here somewhere to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's over here. Okay? They're all the way up here in Caesarea Philippi. It is the headwaters of the Jordan River, part of the headwaters of the Jordan River. Jesus, if you read some of the other accounts, has been over here. They've been up here. You know, it's hard to kind of put an exact location on where he had been taking the disciples, but it's the very northern part of Israel, one of the northern regions. It's about 25 miles, 25 miles from here to there, from the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. So they're kind of far north or out of it, but I think it's important to understand that when Matthew says they were in Caesarea Philippi, it's more than just a geographic location. I'm giving you the geography so you can kind of see, but it's more than a geographic location reference. This is a town that had been given over to Israel by Caesar Augustus. And it was kind of a political alliance. It was given by, to Herod the Great right around the time when Jesus was born. All right? And this was a political alliance between Israel and Rome. And Herod was making some concessions and trying to get along with the emperor and with Rome. And then when Herod the Great died, he passed it along to his son, Herod Philip. And Herod Philip decided that this was going to be the capital of his reign, of, of his area. And he began to modernize it and he began to give all kinds of nods to uh, the Roman officials and to the Roman gods. And he kind of made it this pluralistic area in his capital. And it became pretty well known as, a, as an area of commerce. In the Hellenistic tradition, and that's a big word, that's in the Greek tradition, this was an area that was known as the place of the, of the, of the god Pan, P-A-N. And the god Pan is associated with creation, with earth, right? There's a lot more things that are related to that. But suffice it to say, there was a, there was a place up there that became um, a place to worship this god and then many other gods. A lot of shrines were uh, developed up in this particular area. It was originally known as Paneas, P-A-N-E-A-S, Paneas. And then it became known as Caesarea Philippi, and then eventually later it became known as Paneas, P-A-N-I-A-S. And because of the way it pronounces in Aramaic, um, it was a tough word to say, so it actually got translated more recently into Banias, B-A-N-I-A-S. It's an archaeological site. You can find it on the map today. It's right at the base of Mount Hermon in an area up there um, where some people believe that the transfiguration happened. If you read in Matthew chapter 17, you'll read about the transfiguration. So this is an important cosmopolitan location Roman-occupied territory. Their religion was defined by what we call syncretism. That is, the worship of many gods. You worship yours, I'll worship mine, but let's just give nod to all of them. It was the convergence of political, social, and religious belief, well known for its deference to Rome. As I said, it became the capital of Herod Philip's territory. As I was researching it, 
right? It reminded me a lot of what we might find in American cities today. The gods, I think, look a little bit different, of course. I don't see too many shrines around the city of Rochester, although you could look up on the building and find a Greek god on one of our buildings downtown. How many of you know that? Some of you know that. Look it up. It's pretty interesting. But I think our gods today probably are defined a little bit more like materialism, consumerism, nationalism. Our cities are centers of economic and political and social life. All around us, people are surrounded by the pull to the world. I think you and I, if we walked from here today down to the steps of City Hall, or maybe we walked just to Center City down by the Genesee River, it's a nice walk, and we looked around at all the busyness of the commercial districts and the social life of our city, and we reflect together on the scene that is happening in this scripture. Just reflect. Jesus walks into this city with his disciples. And just put yourself there for a minute. It's not unlike what we could experience walking downtown. This conversation becomes a hinge conversation, as I said, in the sojourn of Jesus. And Jesus starts out by asking this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? It's really a question upon which everything else hinges, isn't it? In the midst of this culture of ideas and beliefs and practices, political and economic allegiances, visions for the future, think of hope for relief from the military, from the government. Some of us could relate to that today. Think of the restoration of an old empire, an old monarchy, like this is time for the restoration of Israel. And Jesus says to his disciples, I need to know what you really think. Do you think what, everything, what everyone else thinks? Or do you see me for who I really am? But I don't want you to just look at that question as on the face. Let's, let's read between the lines a little bit, all right? Who do people say the Son of Man is? His disciples, and of course Jesus, would have known well that this was a reference to an Old Testament passage in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7.13 says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with clouds with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. I was up in my office this morning and I watched those approaching clouds. And sometimes I forget to think that that's the picture that the Bible uses a lot of times for the coming of Jesus. Coming on the clouds of heaven. And they did look a little dark and a little ominous and eventually we did hear that crack of thunder, right? That has nothing to do with the message. It just reminded me of it. So I just, all right. But Jesus would have known. He was making a reference. And in some cases, this reference could have been, at least some commentators make the case, that Jesus was using code language. Because they're out in a public place, potentially. 
And to make a reference to the Son of Man was slightly less controversial than calling himself the Messiah. Because to call himself the Messiah would have been seen as somewhat, well, to say it was controversial was minor. In fact, Messiahs had come and gone. Many had come and gone at that time and at that season of life. And the idea of a Messiah to come and save Israel would have meant political, economic, potentially militaristic overthrow of the Roman Empire. The Romans didn't like that. The Romans thought that that was subversive to the emperor. And so anybody that came along that had this Messiah complex was oftentimes put down just by the Romans, much less the Jews. So we read between the lines and we see Jesus referencing himself to an Old Testament passage which only those who were really closest to him would have understood. Messiahs, in their mind, wage wars. Messiahs overthrow governments. Messiahs reestablish things. In fact, they would have probably not been too far removed from remembering a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. 150 years earlier, who had led a revolt in that particular area, trying to do just that. Let's restore Israel. Let's break the chains that, that bind us from the Greeks and from the Romans. Let's, let's break these bonds. And he did a pretty good job of it, actually. Not good enough, because the Romans eventually quelled that and took over. But this idea of Messiah was... They knew what they were waiting for. They thought they knew what they were waiting for. So Jesus uses another term. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is getting a report from his disciples. And he really wants to know not only what other people are saying, but he wants to know, do you think that I'm just kind of one more of these people with a Messiah complex? Do you think that that's who I really am? Because that's a defining moment for us all. Who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a question that cuts deep. Cuts deep in all of our lives. And in our culture, it's not all that dissimilar. And that we have a lot of options to choose from. We have a lot of people telling us who Jesus is. You can look it up on the internet. They have a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. They have a lot of opinions out there in the world about what constitutes truth. About why it's important to include a lot of ideas. Syncretism, pluralism. Because we don't really want to offend anyone. There's a lot of things going on out in the world. I want you to imagine just for a minute Jesus taking all of us to the food court out at the mall. Sitting us down at the food court in the mall. Or maybe Jesus takes us down to Washington, D.C. and puts us on the mall in Washington, D.C. amongst all of our American history and cultural pluralism. With all of that in full view, imagine Jesus asking us, who do all these people say that I am. What kind of answers come to mind? For you. Who is the world saying Jesus is? I know some of us hear these versions of 
identity every single day. Oh, he's a good man. Oh, he was a great teacher. He's a wise sage, even like a prophet. I think he was a Jew, right? Was he Jewish? Yeah, I think he was a Jew. Ah, he's a fake. He's a phony. He never even really lived. That's just a story that was made up in this fictitious Bible that Christians believe. You hear them? You hear the versions of who Jesus is all around us. We don't even have the context to call him Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets in that sense because we don't even know who those people were. But lest we get a little bit too, like, point the finger at some folks, right? We all have our own little bias, right? I know I'm going to step on some toes here, forgive me. But some of us think that he's the God who's going to restore America. Some of us think that he's the God of life. Some of us think that he's the God who's going to help eradicate racism, prejudice, and injustice. It's not unlike Peter and Andrew and James and John and the other disciples who certainly saw Jesus as their military and their political savior. We sort of get it. We sort of know who this Jesus is. But then it's mixed up with our view of who Jesus should be. Who we want Him to be. Because we live in a world that needs some things. At least that's what we think. And so it gets all mixed up and it gets all convoluted. And you can imagine all of this is running around in their minds. And that's when Jesus brings it home. He says, but who do you say I am? The implication is, I'm the son of man. We got that out of the way already. But who do you say I am? Am I who you associate with the other messiahs that have come and gone? Or am I the messiah that was referenced in Daniel? That son of man coming on the clouds. In fact, that reference to Daniel wasn't necessarily something new. They probably... They understood what Jesus was trying to reference in that question. But he wants to know now, not only what they believe, but also what are they telling others? But who do you say I am? This isn't just a declaration of what they believe. Because in some ways, they sort of knew. But this is a declaration and an account of what they were telling others. So there's a question for us. Like, what would you say? If Jesus asked you, but who do you say I am? Do you soft-pedal Jesus when you're out in the marketplace? Do you mention him at all? Do you speak boldly about who Jesus is? Or are you passive? Kind of afraid of what people are going to say about you. Or maybe you don't want to offend anybody, so we don't even mention the name Jesus. Maybe. Maybe you're not really sure. That's okay. It is one thing to come to church and declare the things that we sing, the things that we pray. The thing, it's one thing to be amongst 
like-minded people and declare that we know that Jesus is who He says He is, right? But it's another thing to do that out in the marketplace. To do that in the world. What do you say in public? Who do you say? Who do you say I am? Of course, we already know, right? Peter blurts it right out. Peter blurts it out. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And I can imagine those sitting with Jesus and the disciples. Whoa, Peter, like, shh, look where we are, Peter. Like, wow, calm down here, buddy. Like, you can imagine that, right? There's this sense of like, yes, you're right, but whoa, look where we are. Like, let's be sensitive here because we still got to get back down home. You know, like, just imagine the scene. There's just this Peter, he he doesn't really care, right? You're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. He just blurts it right out there. And and of course, Jesus is pleased with that response. But we're going to talk about that in just a minute. I want you to notice before we move on, this thought, and this kind of hit me as I was looking at this passage. Jesus invited his disciples to belong before they believed. If you remember back to the calling of the first disciples, remember the calling of the first disciples? If you go all the way back to like Matthew chapter 4 or the beginning part of Luke, right, you can read about the calling of the disciples. And what does Jesus say? It's like, come Follow me. Jesus didn't say, come, say the sinner's prayer, and then you're good. Jesus said, come, follow me. And this passage that we're looking at today, Matthew chapter 16, is well along in that journey. A year and a half, maybe two, roughly, into that journey. He's already called them, and now... After they've been following him, he asks them to clarify for him, who do you think I am? There's this idea of invitation to pursue, to be with, to get to know who Jesus is before you have to actually declare that you actually get it and that you actually understand it all. And I found that comforting. Also enlightening, right? Because so much of our evangelism of today is built upon telling people like, this is who Jesus is and you need to say the sinner's prayer and then you're good. You've kind of signed, sealed, and delivered yourself to heaven if you say these words. That's not what Jesus said. He said, come follow me. Be my disciple. Get to know me. Get to know how good I am. Get to know the way I do things. Get to know the way I live. And then do likewise. And then in that process, in that journey, you will be my disciple. And we will be together. And we will be one. And I think that you and I are all invited onto that journey. It is a journey of belonging and experiencing that leads to believing, that leads to life transformation. It's not just about knowing some historical facts or what others believe. It's not about uh, something political or economic or even like social in that sense. The invitation is to follow Him. 
to live like you lived, to do it with your whole life. It is important for us at some point to make that profession of faith, to believe in who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, and that He came to this life, that He lived this life in a sinless way. And that He proceeded to the cross to die for our sins and that He died a physical death. He was buried even. But that He rose again, conquering death, victorious over death. It is important for us to make that profession, but that profession is not the end game that we've made it out to be in our culture and in our society. In fact, for Jesus, it wasn't even really the starting point. Which is fascinating. The starting point was the invitation to come get to know me. Because if you really get to know me, you'll love me. And I'll love you. And it will be special. The invitation is to all of us. Relationship becomes the starting point. Belief follows relationship. Revelation is given in the journey, right? Jesus acknowledges to Peter, it wasn't some like cool thing that you experienced. It was God giving you revelation that this is who I am. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I would encourage you, for some of you that like to do a little deeper Bible study, Go back and look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. And you will find an oracle given by the prophet Nathan to David. And in that oracle given by the prophet Nathan to David, he makes reference to a son that will come and will build an earthly... I guess it was the... the not the tabernacle, but the... Um, what is it? You guys help me out. Temple, right? He's going to build this temple... That oracle is fulfilled through Jesus Christ in these verses. This is Peter. And on you I am going to build this church. It's an interesting Bible study. So I encourage you to go back and look at it. But notice that this passage, this whole passage, Matthew 16, 13-20, is as much about Peter and the disciples as it is about Jesus. Peter was given revelation by God to understand who Jesus is. And as a result, Jesus gave Peter a new understanding of who Peter was. When we come into this relationship, when we get to know Jesus Christ, our identity is changed. Our identity, who we thought we were and how we relate to the world, our identity is changed. In fact, in some ways, this is a nod to the original Abrahamic covenant. Jesus turns Peter into the new Abraham. He's the foundation of the church that will follow. Peter has been telling 
others that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah. And upon that revelation, the church is going to be built. And in some ways, Peter represents all Christians. Yes, this passage is literally about Peter, but figuratively, this passage represents the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Peter, the rock, was the foundation upon which it would be built. He would be given the keys. In some sense, that represents this new gate. It's different from the rabbis and the other orders of the day. He was being given new authority as part of foundation of a new order called the church to embrace new followers and to even reject those that choose not to believe. The church was formed on this day. This is the foundation. Peter was the rock. We could spend a lot of time unpacking that, but I don't have time to do that today. Just a word study on Peter, Petros, the rock. We could spend a long time looking at that. It's a, it's a fun study. It's another one you could dig into on your own. But I'm just going to move on to verse 20 here really quickly. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That is a very curious way to end this passage. Who do you say I am? But don't tell anybody. Doesn't that seem odd? So why? Why do we have this like, I want, you, I want to know what you believe, but I, I really don't want you to tell anybody. I think I'm going to give you two reasons. There might be more, but I'm going to give you two. This goes back to what I said earlier. Jesus knew the political implications of the term Messiah. He wanted them to be cautious in the use of that term. It was a loaded term, if you could understand that. It described him, of course, but it described something much more profound than they really understood at that moment. Today it would be like using terms in conversation like right-wing, and left-wing, like using terms like pro-life and pro-abortion. They're terms that kind of set the tone for everything that follows in the conversation, right? You get that? This idea that I'm, just by using the language, I've already set it up to kind of go a certain direction. It's a loaded term. I think Jesus knew that some tough stuff was coming, that things were going to be happening. And I think that this is saying, all right, you, you guys got it, but let's keep it on the down low for a little bit longer because there's a few more things that got to happen. And we'll get there, and it's coming, and it's coming faster than you even know, but let's just hang on for a little bit. So I think that's one reason. I think the other reason is this, and we're not going to be able to dig into it too much further today. That'll be part two next week. They thought that they knew who Jesus was. There is this profound declaration, but they really didn't get it after all. I think it reminds me of people who study for a test. Right? You study for a test by reading over your notes once. Or you study for a test by reading a passage once. And then you go and you're like, yeah, I got this. I know this. Right? And then you get down and you start writing the test and like the mind goes blank. Right? You can maybe down a few definitions, but you... If I sat down with you and we did it a little bit more like they do in England, I understand, where we do an oral test or we have to write essays, right? Because you have to show that you actually understand something. 
most people in America would fail, right? My Jamaicans are laughing over here. They get it, right? You get that. That's what American system, like I'm going to learn a few facts, I'm going to spit them out, and then I'm going to say I know what I'm talking about. And if you can even pass the test, you still probably don't know what you're talking about. And I think that's what Jesus saw in this interaction with his people, with his disciples. You get it. You've declared it. I affirm it. But the reality is, I don't think you're there yet. They were starting to believe. But he knew if they were pushed, they would paint a picture that didn't quite look like it was supposed to. It certainly wouldn't have been the picture of the cross. Because they still didn't get it. And we're going to dig into that next week in verses 21 through 28. So where are we left today? Where does this leave us today? This is a defining moment, as I've said. It's a moment with a question that needs a very clear answer. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Not only what are you believing, but what are you saying to other people? Do you define him as the world defines him? I hope not. Is he a good person, a prophet, a person with cool powers? I mean, I hope we're beyond the fact that he's more than a fairy tale. But your answer to the question becomes one of the most profound and defining moments in your life. It could also be one of the most profound and defining moments in somebody else's life. Meaning what you say and how you define it holds tremendous influence with other people. So let me just break this down for the variety of folks that I think could be here today. If you're somebody who's been in a relationship with Jesus Christ for a while, then I want you to spend some time really working to answer that question. I want you to know that you know that you know who Jesus Christ is. You should be examining whether your testimony in word and deed are referring and reflecting Christ. Referring to and reflecting Christ. But you could be here today and you could be somebody who hasn't had that deep and enduring and long relationship with Jesus Christ. This is all kind of new to you. And I want you to believe that Jesus Christ is inviting you into a relationship of discovery, which is cool. You don't have to have it all figured out. You might be listening more to what other people are saying, trying to discern Who is this Jesus that I serve, that I say I want to serve? It's okay. It's okay not to have it all sorted out. But I do want to invite you to to take a step of faith. To follow him. Get to know what it means to really follow him. See if he's somebody worth following. We can help you do that but I need to know that that's the journey that you're on. I would love to know that. At some point, you will be faced with a decision and a need to declare what it is that you understand, but that's part of the journey. Bring your doubts, bring your fears, 
Bring your pain, your past, and tell Jesus that you want to try His way. I personally want you to believe in the Messiah. But I also want you to know that you belong here. This is a relationship. And this place we call church can be your home. Jesus can be trusted. There's a lot wrapped up in that. There's a lot wrapped up in the name of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. Just leave you with this final thought. Jesus is worth discovering. Not just believed because I tell you to. But he'll make himself known to you if you want to know him. And I think that a declaration of faith without that understanding often fails. What you believe about him transforms everything. So we're going to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and give us an opportunity to reflect on those questions and on that relationship today. I would encourage you to let me know somehow. Whether it's on a prayer card, which you have the opportunity to fill out right now, whether it's on an invitation card that you also have an opportunity to fill out. They're in the back of your seats. It's one and the same card. They're just two sides of the same. If you're new, we don't know you, can't get in touch with you, would you let us know who you are? We'd love to know you and that you visited with us today or that you're interested in knowing more about who we are. That's on one side of the card. The other side is an opportunity for you to tell me the journey that you're on, whether it's a prayer request whether it's a praise note, something that's good in your life and you want us to celebrate with you, or maybe it's, I need to know more about this journey, this pursuit of Jesus and what that's really looking like. This is your opportunity to fill out those cards, to reflect on your own life and your own journey. And then we have up here our offering baskets for those of you that have something to share this morning in terms of a tithe, an offering, a gift, a response this morning. And our ushers will also have these baskets in the back at the end. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for these probing and deep questions. We thank you for the opportunities, these defining moments, to declare that we think we understand who you are, or maybe it's just a declaration of, I want to know more. Maybe we don't feel like we can trust you. Maybe we don't know. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe the church has hurt us even. Not just the world around us. And we question. And we wonder. And Lord, you are there with open arms. Saying, come. Come follow me. Lord, may we hear that invitation today. We love you as best we know how. And we give it all to you in Jesus' name.